Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the History of Sacatevelo, Georgia. I'm your host, Roberto, and this is Myth 3, Amiran, the Georgian Prometheus. Before I get any further, I will be reading the story from the Georgian Myths and Folktales, translated by Sharina Kursikidze and Vachtan Chikovani. Thank you both for the intense work you put in making these available for English speakers, as these are not stories the average person will come across. Remember, the whole story was by Kursikidze and Chikovani, and I take no credit for compiling and translating it. I'll be reading Amiran now, and this will be from the Svaneti region of Georgia, near the mountains. Join us afterwards for part two, where we discuss Amiran. In a thick and dense forest, where the tops of the trees reached the sky itself, there stood a tall and steep rock. Not far away from this forest, there lived a hunter, Darjalan. Very often, he would go to this forest to hunt. Once, the hunter approached this rock in the forest, and suddenly he heard a sound as if a woman was crying somewhere. The hunter looked at the rock. He gazes at it higher and higher, but there is no end to it. He cannot see the peak. It disappears far away, high up above the clouds. The hunter tries to climb the rock, but he is unable to do this either because the rock is so steep and inaccessible. The hunter returned home. Here at home, his wicked wife, who is also lame, awaits him. The hunter asked his wife to prepare him some food for the next day's journey, and he himself went to a blacksmith and ordered him to forge lots of chisels and an iron hammer. Everything was ready in the morning. The hunter took the food, enough for a day, then took the chisels and the hammer from the smithy and went into the forest. He approached that place and started hammering the chisels into the rock. The hunter hammers the chisels one by one with his iron hammer, and step by step he climbs the rock, as if climbing stairs. He has no chisels left, and the iron hammer is worn out too when finally the hunter reaches the peak. He looks around and sees there is some opening cut into the rock, like a door. The hunter entered there, went through it to the cave, and here, in the cavern, he saw Dali. Dali, the unearthly sun has never seen beauty, is resting in the cavern. The heavy golden plates are wound around her head. Dali saw Darjalin the hunter, and from the first glance, they fell in love with each other. The hunter stayed with Dali. She did not want the hunter to stay there, but love overcame her, and she surrendered to him. In the morning, Dali begged the hunter to go back home, but Darjalin did not listen and again he stayed with Dali. More and more, Dali asked the hunter to go home. Go back! Your wife is a witch! She is used to seeing you return home every evening. 
She will not wait and will find out about us, and then she will follow your trace and will destroy us. No, said Darjeeling. My wife is lame. She can hardly walk at home. She can't reach us here. But indeed, Darjeeling's wife became doubtful when her husband did not come home. She waited for two days, and on the third day she stood up, took some food for the journey, and followed her husband's footprints. The track led her to the rock. She climbed the chisel steps to the top of the rock and entered the cavern. Here she saw Dolly and her husband sound asleep together. The hunter's wife found Dolly's golden scissors, and with them she cut the sleeping beauty's golden plates. Then she took Dolly's golden plates and scissors with her and left. Dolly and Darjeeling woke up. Dolly lifted her head, but she could not feel the heavy weight of her long plates anymore. She touched her hand to her golden hair. There are no more golden plates. She got up. She looks for her scissors. The scissors are also gone. Dolly became sad and heartbroken. She turned to the hunter and said, You are the reason for my misery. I have told you your wife will destroy us. Now I cannot live in this world any longer. Take a knife and cut my belly. I am pregnant, so take out my baby. If it is a girl, give her any name you wish. If it is a boy, then give him the name Amiran. My son will be a hero. Had he been given the chance to live in his mother's womb up to his time, he would defeat even God, but now he will not be as strong. Listen and do everything as I advise you. After you take the baby from my womb, keep him in a calf's trip for three months so he can rest warmly there and ripen and mature like he would in his mother's womb. Then put him in a cradle and take the cradle to Yaman's river and leave him at the bank of the river. There he will be rescued and baptized by the one who is destined to do this. He will tell my son everything he needs to know. The hunter is sad and miserable. He grieves and anguishes. He does not want to cut his beloved. But Dali insisted and the hunter had to carry out everything that Dali had ordered him. According to Dali's will, Darjeeling cut her womb with trembling hands. He took out a baby boy, beautiful like the sun. He fulfilled all of Dali's wills, then put the baby in the cradle and took him to the river. He left the cradle there and returned home. At the bank of Yaman's river, travelers are passing by and see the child in the cradle. They ask, Who is your father or mother, and who will have to baptize you? The child answers, I have no knowledge of my father and mother, but I know the angel himself has to baptize me. And here comes the angel. He also asked the child the same question that the travelers had been asking. The child answered the angel with the same words he had told the travelers. Three times the angel asked the child, and three times the child gave him the answer. Then the angel revealed itself before the child, baptized him, and gave him the name Amiran. The angel granted him the dagger and ordered the boy to keep it under his footwear at his shin, and not to take it out unless he was in very big danger. Then the angel blessed Amiran and told him that nobody on the earth would be able to defeat him and left. Yaman's servants came to the river to get water. Here they saw Amiran in the cradle and laughed at him. Amiran got angry, stood up, grabbed his mockers and hit the servants' foreheads against each other, then broke all of their water vessels and made them run away. The servants came back without water and with broken water jars. They told Yaman everything that had happened to them. Yaman was outraged. He then stood up and went to the river. Once he saw the child in the cradle, his heart filled with happiness. 
He thought, this boy will be my son's Usup and Badri's friend. He took the cradle with the child and brought it home. Yaman's wife was delighted too. She thought, the boy will help me rock Usup and Badri's cradle. The day went by and nothing happened. The next day, Yaman's wife came out to milk the cows, put her sons Usup and Badri in the cradles, seated Amirand in between them, and ordered him to rock the boys so they would not cry. She threatened Amiran. Trouble to you if you don't do as you're told. As soon as she moved away, Amiran found an awl and started pricking Usup and Badri with it. The boys shed tears and started screaming. The mother heard the voices, became angry, and shouted at Amiran. Look after my children as you are ordered, or I will come back and you will regret it. Not only you, but even Dali's son Amiran would have a hard time with me. Then Amiran grumbled. You don't know that I am Dali's son, Amiran. Yaman's wife heard these words. Happy, she left the cows, ran to Amiran, embraced and kissed him, washed him with milk, and wrapped him in the best and finest precious cloth. Since then, Yaman's wife took as much care of Amiran as her own children. Yaman and his wife rejoiced that their sons acquired such a glorious friend. The three boys grew up, and now they became real heroes. The lads defeat every enemy, coming from the east or west. They fight everyone they meet on their way and always win and turn enemies back. Once, these defeated men shouted at the lads, Why do you only try your power on us? If you are such heroes, go and find out why it is that your father Yaman is blind in one eye and go and fight his offender. As soon as the lads heard these words, the three of them ran to Yaman's wife and started asking her, Mother, tell us how our father lost his sight. The mother does not tell them the truth, but it says instead, Yaman became ill with smallpox and that's how he lost his eye. I swear, nothing else happened. Twice the mother repeated these words to the lads, but the third time, trying to find out the truth from their mother, Amiran, Usup, and Badri thought of the following trick. The three of them returned home very angry and asked their mother to bake three cheese breads for them. As soon as the mother spread the coal over the cheese breads, Amiran, Usup, and Badri grabbed the breads out of the fire stove, held the breads to their mother's breast, and said, Either you tell us the truth about Yaman's eye, or we will burn your breasts. Yaman's wife could not bear this torture anymore, and she told her sons the whole story. For a long time, Yaman had an enemy, Dev. The dev had been requesting that Yaman had to give him payments. As soon as Usup and Badri were born, the dev came and demanded to give him one of our sons. If not, then Yaman had to give him his right eye. Yaman could not sacrifice his children, so he pulled out his eye and gave it to the dev. After hearing this story, Amiran and Yaman's son stood up and prepared for the road to go and fight that dev. The lads asked Yaman to get them bows and arrows made of pure iron. Yaman fulfilled their request. The lads took the bow and tried it, but Amiran's hand was so powerful that the bow broke. Then Amiran himself took 30 pounds of iron, went to a blacksmith, and made him forge the bow that would withstand his strong hand. In the morning, the three lads set out on the road to fight with the dev. They walked, walked, and after a long journey, they saw a dev in a meadow. This dev has a beautiful garden with apple trees, and his sheep flocks are grazing on the grass. The dev noticed the lads coming towards him and shouted at them, Hey you! If you have any strength, 
Try to knock down at least one apple from my apple trees. Or try to throw the apple to the trees. Usup and Badri tried for a long time, but could not knock the apples down. Then Amiran loosed his arrow and knocked down all the apples from one side of the tree. And then he threw all those apples to the other side of it. The dev shouted again, If you have any strength, then lift one of my sheep off the ground and put the other sheep on the ground. Usup and Badri tried again, but could not even move the sheep. Now Amiran made all of the dev sheep lift up and then hit them all together to the ground, almost killing the entire flock. The dev was maddened and drove his sheep and Amiran among them to his house. Then he locked the door from inside and left Usup and Badri out in the garden. The dev slaughtered four lambs and cooked the dinner. He himself is sitting and eating the dinner, throwing the bones behind his back to his sister. The dev's sister is standing in the corner, tied there with iron chains. The dev prepared to go to sleep and said, I had enough for tonight's dinner. Tomorrow I will eat Amiran. He said this and went to sleep. When the dev fell asleep, Amiran approached his chained sister and asked her to teach him how to defeat the dev. The dev's sister said, There is nothing that will kill my brother except his sword, which he keeps in the oil. The sword is so strongly dipped in the oil that no one can move it and take it out. But my brother has one wicker strap. Find it and tie one end of it to the sword and hand me the other end. Let's try to pull the sword together. Perhaps we will take it out. Once you have the sword in your hand, approach my brother. But be careful. Don't hit him. You only have to touch his neck with the sword. The sword will then cut his head itself. Then the dev sister asked Amaran to swear to Christ that he would not deceive her and let her go free once he killed the dev. Amiran swore, then found that strap, attached one end to the sword tightly, and gave the dev sister the other end. The two of them began pulling the strap and managed to get the sword out of the oil. While they were pulling the sword out, it began to thunder with such a sound that the dev woke up, but then he fell asleep again. Amiran touched the dev's throat with the sword, the sword started cutting it. It cut and cut, and it came to the middle of the throat, when the dev felt something and started rolling back and forth, but it was too late. The sword cut off the dev's head, so Amaran was through with the dev. Then the dev's sister asked Amaran to release her, but Amaran broke his oath to God and killed the dev's sister too. After this, all of the dev's possessions were left to Amaran and his friends. The lads left some of those goods there, some they took with them and continued their journey. They traveled, traveled, and entered a dark fir forest. Here they see a cliff. On the cliff, a huge dev dragon is standing in spinning wool. The dev is holding the trunk of the fir tree, and as a sinker on the spindle, there is a millstone. It was the dev who had taken Yaman's eye. The dev saw Amiran and his friends and shouted, Hey, what kind of flies do I see there? Now turn back and go, or I will eat your flesh, and then I will gnaw on your bones. Amiran shouted back, Hey you, worthless creature, you are boasting too early. Wait a little, you have not eaten me yet. The dev got angry, left the wool on the cliff, and came down. Amiran and the dev fought and wrestled for a long time. Amiran shoots the dev with his arrows. One arrow he shoots for himself, and the other two he shoots for Usup and Badri. 
Tiredness overcame everyone. Then the dev approached Amiran, opened his huge mouth, and swallowed him. He swallowed Amiran and went home. Usup and Badri stayed there. When the dev was entering his gate, suddenly Usup reached him, grabbed his tail, and cut it. As soon as the dev went through the door, he felt a stomach ache. Oh, troubles come to me, my mother, shouted the dev, and then he rushed to the door. There he starts rubbing his belly against the pillars to ease the pain. But he can't stand on his feet anymore without his tail and hits and hits the ground again and again. My dear son, what is happening with you today? What did you eat? Asked the mother when she sees her dev son in such suffering. The dev answered, Oh, my dear mother, today I met three flies and I swallowed one. Woe's to your mother, my son, if you have swallowed Amiran. Dolly's son, said the dev's mother. Meanwhile, Usup and Badri are standing under the window of the house and hear every word that the mother tells her dev son. They called Amiran. Amiran, Amiran, take the dagger that you hide. Take it out and fight. Show the dev your pride. Amiran heard these words and thought, it may be true that I will never go through this kind of hardship again. So he took his dagger out and started stinging and cutting the dev's groin. The dev roared, Ali, don't kill me and I will spit you out or throw you out. Amiran got angry and said, Oh, you worthless animal creature. I don't want to live as one spitted or thrown out. Well then, said the dev, cut two of my ribs and find a way out through my side. Amiran cut the dev's flank and came out but he lost one of his eyes inside. He called the dev, Give me my eye back, or you will not stay alive. The dev answered, Cut a piece of my liver and a piece of my lung. Spread them on your eye socket, and your eyes will become better than before. Amiran cut a big piece of liver and an even bigger piece of lung, and then put them on his eyes, and truly his injured eye was healed. Then the dev asked Amiran to sew his flank back onto his body. Instead, Amiran took a wooden oven door and stuffed the dev's side with it. If the dev did not have a wooden flank, then the world would come to an end. When there is an eclipse, the dev dragon swallows the sun, but the sun burns the dev's wooden flank and comes out and shines again. After this, Amiran demanded Yaman's right eye from the dev. The dev does not want to give Amiran Yaman's eye, but does not dare refuse. He pointed Amiran to the column and said, Here! In this column there is a chest. There is a box in that chest. Take it out. Yaman's eye is there. Amiran found the eye and took it. The three brothers left the dev there and they themselves returned home. They gave Yaman back his eye and then sat to rest a little. Amiran desired to go and fight someone again. He asked Yaman to keep Usup and Badri home. They only disturbed me in hard times. Usup and Badri heard these words became sad and started asking Amiran to take them with him, not to leave them home. We can't live without you, said the brothers. So what could he do? Amiran took Usup and Badri with him again. The brothers walked and walked a lot and saw three devs in a meadow. The devs shouted at the brothers, You would be fine fellows if you could get the son has never seen beauty Ketu, the daughter of Kekalut's king, as a wife. Many lads tried to get her and marry her, but no one could. Amiran asked the devs, Where does Keklut's king live and where does he hide his daughter? The devs showed him the way to the palace of Keklut's king and said, The king keeps his daughter in the castle, and the castle hangs on chains from the sky. The lads left the devs and went to the country of Keklut's king. They traveled, 
traveled and came to the sea. The sea is big and wide. The lads cannot cross it. Suddenly, they saw some dev woman there. Amiran asked her if she knew a way to cross the sea. The dev woman answered, There is no way through the sea, but if you take me with you as a friend, then I will help you. Amiran swore to Christ that he would take the dev woman with him. Then the dev woman cut one of her plates and spanned it across the sea like a bridge. Usup and Badri crossed the bridge first. Amiran followed them. The dev woman was last to cross the bridge, but when she reached the middle of it, Amiran hit the plate with his sword and cut it, and the dev woman fell into the sea. This was the second time Amiran broke his oath to God. After the brothers crossed the sea, they walked for a long time through the dry land. Here in one meadow, they met a man named Andrarab. Andrarab was so big that nine pairs of oxen and nine pairs of bulls could barely drag the bullock cart where Andrarab was resting. They were taking Andrarab to bury him while he was still alive, because when he died, nobody would be able to take his heavy body to the grave, and he would be left without a burial. Andrarab's one leg is hanging out from the cart, dragging it on the ground, and with its heavy weight the leg digs the ground as a plow. Crowds of many people followed Andrarab's cart, but they could not lift his leg to put it back on the carts. Suddenly, Amiran saw this. He grabbed Andrarab's leg with his bow, threw it, and put it back on the cart. Andrarab was surprised. Who is here who possessed such strength that he was able to put my leg back on the cart so easily? The people pointed to Amiran. Andrarab held out his hand to shake Amiran's. But Amiran was frightened. He thought, He will squeeze my hand with all his force and will break my bones. So he took and handed Andrarab a basalt block instead of his hand. Andrarab pressed the block and squeezed the juice out of it. Then again, he held out his hand to Amiran. This time, Amiran shook his hand with Andrarab's. Andrarab entrusted his son to Amiran and asked him to take his boy with him and not to betray and protect him and to love him as his own brother. Amiran promised and swore to Christ. So Andrarab was taken to the destined place, and his son went with Amiran and his brothers. They walked and walked a lot. Then Amiran decided to have some rest and lay down to sleep. While he was sleeping, Andrarab's son caught two deer with his bare hands and hung them over a tree, close to the place where Amiran was resting. Amiran woke up, saw the deer, and inquired how the deer had been caught. Then he found out how Andorob's son had hunted the deer and disliked it. He thought to himself, Andorob's son is still a child, but he is already so strong. He will defeat me when he grows up. So Amaran decided to kill Andorob's son. He decided and did so. For the third time, he broke his promise to God. The brothers left Andorob's son dead and continued their way to search for the daughter of Kekalut's king. They walked and walked, and at last... They found that castle where Keklut's king and his daughter Ketu lived. Amiran asked Usup, Try to reach the chain and cut it with a saber. Usup jumped, but could not even touch the chain. Badri jumped too, but was also without success. Then Amiran jumped and grabbed the chain. He raised his dagger to cut it. The castle went down and fell on the ground. The three brothers entered the castle. From first glance, Amiran and Ketu fell in love with each other. Keklut's king, Ketu's father, found out about what had happened. He gathered his entire army and went to the castle. The army surrounded the castle in three rows. Amiran saw the soldiers and became displeased. 
He ordered Usup to go fight with the army. Usup went out and broke through the first row of the army. Keklut's king blew at him, and Usup fell dead on the ground. Then Badri went out and broke through the second row. But as soon as he approached Keklut's king, Keklut's blew at him, and Badri fell dead on the ground too. Amiran became angry and decided to fight with Keklut's king himself. Ketu warned Amiran, My father wears a millstone on his head. The millstone is attached to his neck with a golden chain. When you approach him, try to cut this chain. Then the millstone will pull his head forward and his neck will become exposed. Then take your dagger and cut off his head. If you don't do it this way, you will not be able to overcome my father. Amiran remembered everything. Then he went out, defeated Keklut's king's entire army, and approached the king himself. Keklut's blew and Amiran fell down on one knee. Then Amiran struck his dagger and cut the golden chain on the king's neck. The millstone pulled the king's head to the front. Then Amiran leaped up, fluttered his dagger on the bare neck, and cut off Keklut's king's head. Amiran returned to the castle, and there he started mourning Usup and Badri. He told Ketu, I will never be able to go back home without them. What shall I say to the old parents when they see that none of their sons are alive? Then Ketu asked, Can you recognize him among the dead soldiers? I will, said Amiran. Usup's ring has a stone with the sun carved on it, and Baji's ring has a stone with the moon. Amiran and Ketu went out and started looking for Usup and Badri's bodies among the dead soldiers. At last, they found the brothers. Then Ketu took out her magic handkerchief, touched Usup and Badri's faces with it, and revived them. Amiran rejoiced now that he has Ketu as his wife, and his brothers are alive, and he is taking them home. They took all of Keklut's king's goods and possessions with them and went back home. They came to Yaman. Yaman is happy that his sons and Amiran have returned as heroes. But Amiran told Yaman that from now on he will never take Usup and Badri with, because they cannot be heroes like him. Since then, Amiran went to commit heroic deeds alone. There was nobody on earth who could withstand the fight with him. Amiran defeated all of his enemies and won every fight. Only three devs, three boars, and three oaks were left in the world. Amiran fought even with God. Three times he broke his oath to Christ and committed many other regretful things. Because of these sins, God punished Amiran. God tied Amiran with an iron chain and bolted him to an iron post, deeply buried into the ground. Together with Amiran, God also chained his dog Kursha, who destroyed many of God's beloved goats. For the entire year, Kursha gnaws, and Amiran pulls the chains, trying to draw up the heavy iron post. They are just about to pull up the post out of the ground and free themselves, but at that moment, God sends a bird there. The bird flies and sits on the post. Amiran gets angry and raises his chains to get rid of the bird. The chain hits the iron post. The bird flies away, and the iron post goes back into the ground. And this is repeated every year. Kursha is an eagle's cub. Every spring, the eagle gives birth to eaglets with one cub among them. When the eagle sees the cub, she takes him high to the sky and then throws him down to the ground so that humans cannot find and tame the cub. Nevertheless, one of the hunters found his dog Kursha, who is now chained together with Amiran and raised him. Kursha has eagle wings on both sides, and he is so clever and fast that with two jumps, he can catch an antelope. 
Three jumps are disgraceful to him. As punishment, because Korsha killed many goats, God chained him together with Amiran. Regarding Korsha, Svans have composed the cry song of a hunter who lost a dog Korsha. Korsha, my Korsha. Korsha is lost, Korsha. I lost you at midnight, exactly at midnight. Woes to me. What if a merchant took you? The merchant took you. Woes to me. What if the Kaji stole you away from me? Kursha's mouth and ears are like gold, like gold. Kursha's eyes, his eyes are like the moon, like the moon. Kursha's barking is the thunder of the sky. Kursha's paws are threshing floors. Kursha's jump is like a pasture. Kursha's food, his food is bread, soft and fresh. Woes to me. Perhaps they gave you shaft to eat the shaft. Kursha's drink, his drink is wine, fresh and sweet. Woes to me. Perhaps they gave you muddy water to drink the muddy water. Korsha's bed, his bed is feather bed and feather cover. Woes to me. What if they gave you bed of chips to sleep on? Korsha, my Korsha, from above you are a lion. From below you are a pheasant. On dry land you are a hero. In the sea you are a vessel. Korsha, my Korsha, I cry for you, I cry, I grieve, I grieve. Since I have lost you, one year passed already. Hey everyone! Thank you for listening to the history of Sacadvillo, Georgia. It's always a pleasure sharing the history and culture of Georgia, as well as having you here. It would be so kind as to drop a review on iTunes. It would really help our podcast grow. If you don't want to do that, Feel free to follow us on social media or even tell your friends about the show. It goes towards helping the show grow and helping me see that people want more cultural stories. Now back to the show! Hello everyone! As is routine, we're going to have a discussion. Joining us is Brendan and we're going to discuss several things such as how Amaran and Prometheus compare and contrast to one another, the use of Christ in this legend, how the versions differ from one another, and whatever tangent we get on. Enjoy! Gamar Jova Brendan, and welcome back to the history of Sacatvelo, Georgia. And we are here today to discuss the Georgian Prometheus, Amaran. So... Let me know what you know about Amaran so far, other than what I've sent you. Uh, nothing. Great, because we're in the same boat. So, uh, but I did read a lot of articles, and I did get sent many articles by different Georgians who I asked about Amaran and different professors of mythology. So for me, that was very helpful. Shout out to Professor Kevin Tweet up in Canada. He was very helpful with one of his articles. Um. So yeah, so Amiran. So as I said earlier, he is essentially the Georgian Prometheus. But mm -hmm. that's where there's many differences between both of them. Yes, that's true. There's, that is very true. And from what I could tell, it's he Amiran takes a lot from different kinds of mythology, and and he just kind of goes everywhere. So. I, but just, just so we can start off on a nice, clear bunch, we're going to discuss Amaran and Prometheus because that is the title of this episode. So, 
essentially, Amiran is the Georgian warrior hero. He is basically their Hercules. He's a man who approached near godhood. He can basically complete any challenge. Actually, a better... Almost any challenge. Almost any challenge, With yes. Very notable exceptions. Very notable exception, yeah. Um, he can basically... He's better likened to Achilles, if anything. Is that a good or a bad thing? Because I remember Achilles being kind of a weenie. Even if he wasn't vulnerable. Not not so much on the weenie side, because Amiran loves fighting, and this is very... This will become very apparent if you listen to the first part of this episode. He mm -hmm. likes fighting. And that'll be a point I'll get into a bit later in this discussion. So yes, so basically, he's not a big weenie uh, like Achilles, but uh, he is basically okay. pretty powerful. Achilles isn't isn't a weenie, but he's really dramatic. He's just over dramatic. Like I mean, that's oh, what happens here, you know. Oh, I have to soak all day. Because why do you even soak all day? Because what? Uh, somebody told him off, or told him he was too proud, or something. That that, that does happen a lot. Um, yeah. But anyway, that's other Greek mythology. We'll get away from that. For now. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. Okay, so basically... So one of the big differences I found between Amaran and Prometheus was is the fact that Prometheus is a lot more conniving, intelligent. He's more cunning while Amiran just doesn't think and just uses his strength to resolve all problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you want another comparison to mythology, Prometheus is Loki and Amiran is Thor. Yes, basically. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Amiran, so yeah, so Amiran is basically Thor and Prometheus is Loki. Amiran will just kind of go and just look for the next battle. Loki just kind of just wants to do his own thing and just kind of be happy with it. But since I already talked about Amiran, you know, we heard about Amiran's story in the earlier episode. You just kind of want to summarize the story of Prometheus from all the different sources you gathered from? Yes. So I'm drawing this from two main sources. The first one is from Hesiod's Theogony. Hesiod was a Greek writer. Um, and then later, um, uh, some other sources like Sappho, Aesop, or Ovid. Sappho was um, Greek, Ovid was Roman, and Aesop was Roman also, I believe. So um, the story of Prometheus begins with um, Prometheus, and he has several siblings. He has Epimetheus, who is um, sort of a foolhardy titan. And by the way, Prometheus's name literally means forethought. And you'll see several times he outwits Zeus, whose wisdom is supposed to be unmatched. Um, so he has, he has several siblings, Epimetheus, Atlas, who holds up the sky, um, Minotius, um, who is his sister, and their parents are Iapetus and his wife, Clymene, I think, is it Clymene? C-L-Y-M-E-N-E. -E. Um, I have no clue. These names are all Greek yeah. to me. And... <laughs> <laughs> and her father was the Titan Oceanus, who is the ocean. Um, so according to later sources, like Sappho, Aesop, and Ovid, um, he first creates humanity from clay, 
and then breathes life to them. So he is a creator god. He's technically a titan. Um, but he had the foresight to see that the gods would win the Titanomachy, the Clash of the Titans. So he sided, He was one of the few times that sided with the gods. His um, sibling Atlas, of course, sided with the Titans and was punished to hold up the sky. Um, I don't remember that in the movie. Yeah. So he creates humans from clay, breathes life to them. Um, and at this point, he becomes an advocate for humanity, who are his children, basically. So he, in the story of um, how sacrifices to the gods came to be, Prometheus um, presented two sacrifices to Zeus. Um, the first one was a very unappetizing meat wrapped in the stomach of a cow or an ox. And the other was the bones of an ox wrapped in a very appetizing looking fat. And so, of course, Zeus picked that one. And with that, Prometheus tricked Zeus into giving humans meat and letting them sacrifice the bones. Mm-hmm. Um, for this trick, Zeus punishes humanity by not only withholding fire. So humanity was forced to eat raw meat, have no light, have no warmth. Um, and so on and so forth. He also, um, according to um, a work by Hesiod called, I think it's called Days and Works, um, which is not the Theogony, but it was like a later, it was like a farmer's almanac, which also had stories um, that uh, in that story, Zeus also withholds um, the means of life and things like metalworking um and that is the reason that humanity um has to work in order to live because prior to that humanity could work for a day and support themselves for a year um and of course most famously prometheus decides to um steal fire back from the gods as well as teach humanity metalworking um and for this um Zeus punishes him in two ways. He chains him to a mountain that's said to be in the Caucasus. We had this come up in Jason and the Argonauts. Um, And every day an eagle would come and eat his liver. But since he's immortal, he can't die from having his liver eaten. So it grows back every night. And every day he's tormented um, for centuries until one day... um, Heracles gets permission to free Prometheus from Zeus and he breaks Prometheus's chains. Um, there is another um, punishment that Zeus gives us. Um, and this is where you find out what the Greeks thought of women. Um, I mean, the, the wording Hesiod chooses is basically, and then Zeus uh gave um, Prometheus's brother Epimetheus Pandora, the first woman from whom all women are descended. Um, and he gives her, in, the, in most translations of the story, the, the term is Pandora's box. Technically, it's not a box, it's a jar. It's some kind of Greek jar. Um, he forbids her to open it, but she, being a woman and weak of will, she cannot resist it. <clears throat> so she opens it anyway. And literally all of men's problems um, stem from Pandora's one act of being unable to resist 
uh, resist temptation. This is things like disease, despair, um, and, and death. Um, so that's kind of like all um, the troubles that come with, um, having to put up with women. So that's basically kind of like what Hesiod means. Yeah. So essentially it's kind of like, if we're going using like a more modern perspective, it's basically Adam and Eve in a garden of Eden kind of situation. Yeah. There are many parallels to this. I think they have a common cultural root in Mesopotamian mythology. Um, I mentioned there are similarities between Prometheus and Enki, um, who I I'm forget if is Gilgamesh's companion or um, a god. I forget which he is. I think he's Gilgamesh's companion. Probably. Um, right. Um, and so you see the same thing here. Um, uh, Eve's inability to resist temptation. Well, Prometheus plays the part of the serpent. Um, he is the one who causes humanity's downfall um, or lifts them up because that's sort of how it is in the Greeks. We'll get into those comparisons later. Um, and you know, Pandora plays the part of Eve. She's the first woman. And because of her inherent weakness, she, uh, cannot resist the temptation of, um, something she was told not to do in the case of the greek mythology it's a deliberate trick by zeus um but god is more benevolent in um in genesis yeah so well so now bringing this back to amaran amaran basically does not make humans because he is essentially part human already Mm -hmm. he's essentially a demigod in some in some iterations of the story Um, we'll yes. get to that. His mother is Dali, and she's Dali. She's, Dali. she's a hunting goddess, yeah, who serves as the patron of wild hoofed, uh, hoofed wild mountain animals such as the ibexes and deer. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and I just want to—I don't know if this is a coincidence or not, but I want to point out that the episode where her hair is cut off it closely mirrors the episode where Loki cuts off Freya's hair. Yeah, but another woman does that, depending on the mm-hmm. on the iteration of the story. Because there is doesn't she literally do it for just no reason? She sees her husband with Dolly. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but there's also like a bunch of other stories because, like, like I think um, the um, the the Soviet uh, Georgian folk or Soviet folk folkologist, I think is the term. Um, Forest. Flo- um, yeah, Georgian for uh, the Soviet folklorist uh, Chikovani. He yeah, like Mikhail his Mikhail 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 Chikovani. I should know this better. Um, he basically found over eighty four iterations of the story. I thought it was probably even more. There's eighty over eighty four. Okay. Yeah, just different because all the small different regions and everything. So mm-hmm. everyone tells it kind of differently. So there's, I believe there's over eight, over eighty four. That might be from what I could tell. If I recall correctly, but anyways, so there's over 84 versions, so everything's always slightly different. Some things are similar, some things aren't always similar. The only similar thing is that Dolly's son is Amiron, and that's that's already the first difference. Is you know Prometheus was a titan, so he came before the gods. Amiron's just a demigod of sorts. Yeah, um, and um, the Dodona Kizu. Kaziria mentions briefly that there are some parallels. Obviously, that 
show um, a Christian influence in the story. So there's the part where Amiran is put into, I think, um, it's like it's a hollowed out tree, I think, which is and put into a river and is later discovered. It's in the cradle, but yeah, depends the cradle. on the version. Yeah, in the cradle. Obviously, there's a parallels there between Moses being left in um, in a uh, in a tightly woven basket in the reeds in the Nile River. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and there's some parallels between him being sewn into the body of a cow, um, in a, or not the body of a cow, the st- uh, into a cow, a living cow, in order to... Yeah, the womb of a living cow. Yeah, in the womb or, of a cow. The womb of a dead pregnant cow in this version that i'm that i just finished reading right interesting so um there's some parallels there between jonah um and i also want to point out there's some parallels with um the god dionysus the god of wine um because i think in some stories he's like either an underdeveloped fetus or he's was um torn apart by um wild women um, and so either like just his heart or his some other body part or just his undeveloped fetus is sewn into, um, is sewn into Zeus's groin and then he develops mm. later and that's how he's born. Yeah. I mean, I'm not that great at the Bible. I probably, I have two copies of it, but I have not touched it. <laughs> um, they're both gifted by the way. Um, those are the people who gifted it to me that. Um, but anyways, yeah, so, uh, essentially as if all that Amiran was, you know, he was born from Dali and a hunter, depending on the version of the story, you'll see that there are some horrible things that happened to Dali. We'll talk about mm. that a bit later. Um, but there's a trigger warning regarding that. Yes. So I think you guys know ahead of time. Um, Tr- trigger warning for sexual assault specifically. So yes, that, exactly. bother, that sort of thing bothers you, just click off now because we're going to talk. Or we'll tell you when we talk about we'll, it. We'll tell you when to click off. Um, but anyways, continuing back to Amaran and Prometheus. Um, essentially, Amaran just doesn't use his intelligence like Prometheus does because Amaran, what he created, depending on the version of the story, he created blacksmithing and metallurgy for humans. Mm-hmm. Because it's he uses a a thirty pound iron bow because every wooden bow he uses just snaps because of his mighty strength. That's one part of the story I liked. I like that one detail. Um, and I think I forget if it was, um, uh, yeah, Kaziria once again, Dodona Kaziria at the Slavics department at the University of Indiana in Bloomington. I don't know if he's still working there or she. I don't know what kind of name Dodona is, but uh. If it ends with an A, it's probably a woman. Okay, so she points out that um, the Greeks most likely adopted several motifs from Amarani, Amaran into the myth of Prometheus. Um, mm-hmm. And Protocristova is another source here. Um, they mention that Prometheus is just sort of almost primordially connected to the region of the Black Sea. Um, yeah, it's primordially connected to the region of the Black Sea. Um, so I guess the scholarly consensus is that, well, the Amaran and Prometheus were stories that developed independently, 
but Greeks later adopted elements of Amaran's story into Prometheus' story. So what's actually very interesting along those lines is that the story of Amaran actually comes out of the Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. So the story of Amaran actually, I believe, predates that of Prometheus. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, because it was like 8th mm-hmm. millennium BC is when it, when it, when it can find like the earliest iterations of the story. But even then, like at the end of the story, um, we'll get into this a bit later when we cover the relationship with Christ. Um, but at the end of the story, Amaran is also chained up in the mountains. But and except, except instead of get, getting his uh, liver eaten by an eagle, he has an eagle cub bear, an uh, eagle cub dog that remains his constant companion. Named yeah, Kursha, it's which, just it's a dog that was born of an eagle. Dog that was born of an eagle and has eagle wings, and his oh, name is okay. Kursha, which means black eared. I'll actually oh, send cute. you a song because I want to use that at the end of the. Um, well, I'm like reciting the the poem at the end about Kursha. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have that playing in the background, just like the music with it. Right. So, you know, it's it's the babe to his Paul Bunyan. Exactly. Um, but anyways, yeah. So, so, the, so the form of this story actually comes from the area Svaneti, which is up in northwestern Georgia, mm-hmm. uh, near the mountains, which, you know, which explains why you find Dali in the mountains, Amiran chained up in the mountains, because that's what they were used to. And that's what they had around them. And there's even places you can go to see, like, this is Amaran's mountain. This is where Dali's mountain is. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll post pictures of Dali's mountain because that one people kind of assume they know for sure it's that mount, exact mountain. Yeah, I know people say, oh, there's, they also say, oh, there's Prometheus's cave and there's Prometheus's yeah, so, mountain. Well, and I was actually asking people about, you know, information about Amaran. Someone said you need to go to go see Amaran's cave or Prometheus's cave because it's right here. And I'm like, thank you, but I need information about Amaran, <laughs> like more mm-hmm. than just the stories. And they're like, nope, can't help you there. <laughs> yeah, it makes about makes about much. What do you expect? It was a lot of Georgian sources that were all in Georgian, and then when mm-hmm. I got them, my friend, when, when my Georgian friend read them over, basically said they all said the exact same thing. And which is what I already had written down. So it was like, oh, great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But anyways, so one another thing that I see. Um, so, so what, what? Something I see from both of them is that both both Prometheus and Amaran live in the imaginary world that's filled with you know materials, and they can do whatever they want, and they can just live off of nature without having to do anything extra or exchange items, and especially with Amaran. Um, he lives in a world where people just get by by fighting and hunting because you don't see anything about regarding farmers. You see a sheep farmer, but that's not a human. That's a dev, which is a like a it's a many headed ogre whose heads can regenerate if any of them are cut off. So basically, they're they're basically a massive ogre with bunch of with a bunch of heads, mm-hmm. and they're compared to the hydra, and they like to live un- underground or in mountains, where they okay. like hoard treasures, and keep their captives, which is, if you notice, Amaran um, was kept captive, and the one dev actually just kept his sister captive for some reason. Um, so they usually, like, live in a family, um, and heroes would, like, outwit them using tricks or games. Right. But, so um... It sort of plays the same role as, like, um... I think there was a huge parallel... Oh, yeah, there's a huge parallel between, um... The dragon uh, dev. 
Yeah. Yeah, the dragon dev and uh, how Odysseus outwits the Cyclops um, Polyphemus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and actually, the the word actually come, can, is probably related to that of the Zoroastrian and Persian mythology. It was mm-hmm. Dev, you know, Devas. So yes. the words are actually kind of related because per, Persian has a the Persian Persian culture has a huge influence on Georgian, even if they doesn't have as much of a big influence. But like mm-hmm. back then, huge influence. Yeah, I was um, reading in um, Kaziria. Kaziria mentioned that a lot of Georgian literature that retold the story of um, Amiran woven a ton of Persian mythology just because that was the dominant culture there. So of course this was mm-hmm. seen as, um, as high culture. So it was, it was fashionable and re- almost required to have heavy Persian influence. Yeah, exactly. Um, but so back to that, you know, they, Amiran just is always fighting and, but, and they take things without thinking about giving stuff back. Like the only time you see someone giving anything back is when Amiran and Usup and Badri, his stepbrothers finally, acquire his their father's eye and give it back to their father mm-hmm. um but Amiran just kind of lives for the fight he just kind of looks for the next battle he wants the next challenge and even except what i found interesting was he doesn't really care for women at all like he falls in love with like the <laughs> one woman because like, at first sight he falls in love with ketu his only love is battle except his only real love is battle because you know what happens to ketu after you know, they, they kill her father and take away uh, all the stuff from this castle. Thousand battle? Uh, no, she was never heard from again. <laughs> nothing. Like nothing she, she's mentioned like, oh, they go home. And then the story just continues. And, and it's like, Amaran does this. Amaran does that. Nothing about Ketu. Um, and like, what's funny, the funny thing is, is like the George, like the Caucasians, they have like this big sequence of like, they they tend to have like this whole negotiation tactic where they they negotiate they give gifts they can they give counter gifts when re, when trying to marry off um, family members. Mm-hmm. Um, so base, but so like that's like Amaran kind of goes against that because he just kind of takes Ketu for himself and then just kind of dumps her off at the next place he can find he can afford to dump her off at. Yeah. Um, Does but, uh, that might. Uh, it de- this depends if um, Georgian culture is very big on hospitality because yes, I'm- they are super huge on hospitality. Like when I was in Georgia, my friend uh, they invited me over, and there was a massive like feast. Like I was like I was expecting like you know like a small like they're super into hospitality. They love guests. Like you don't go into if you go if you get invited to a Georgian household, you're gonna gain about fifteen pounds. Yeah, that same day. Um, but my point was there is that there are a ton of um, this is true in Norse sagas and this is true in Jason and the Argonauts is that hospitality, proper hospitality, is a huge theme. Um, you know, King mm-hmm. Aetes's biggest sin is that he wasn't hospitable to Jason and the Argonauts, even though he was trying to steal a golden fleece. Yeah, it didn't help that uh, Aetes saw his grandsons back when he exiled them. So. And like, oh yeah, here's he, hey, hey, Grandpa, we're back, and we brought a bunch of Greeks over. Yeah, <laughs> if there's one thing that Georgians love, it's the Greeks. And they, they you know, they actually kind of do because they literally like the word for Greek and wise are basically almost yeah. super similar. 
like mm-hmm. Berzeni. So Berzeno and Berzeni literally means wise. So the Greeks are just wise people because they bring in all the information, all the knowledge. And I was like, yeah. when I had my first Georgian lesson, I was like, what? Mind blown. I did not expect that at all. <laughs> but yeah, Georgians uh, are super hospitable. Um, but back to the Greeks have the same tangent. opinion of Georgians. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, but, but back to the topic. Uh, so basically, but what you can see is with Prometheus and Amiran is that they're both kind of like a mis- misogynistic and anti-social fantasies of like the Greek or Caucasian yeah. male. And they're both marked by the absence of constraints on, of civilization because they kind of just, mm-hmm. you know, a Prometheus created mankind. So he just, he can do whatever he wants with them, really. And Amiran just doesn't care because he just like, I will fight you. In you know, in any I regards, I wouldn't agree with that characterization of Prometheus. Um, but we'll, we can get into that later. But what this does remind we can get me, into, of, we can get into now. After. Yeah. Oh. Well, I was just going to say this. That also again reminds me of Enki. I uh, no Enkidu. That's right. Enkidu is um, Gilgamesh's companion. Enkidu is like a is like a wild man um, mm-hmm. who does become civilized basically because he falls in love uh, in the epic of Gilgamesh, but. Anyway, um, so I guess um, I wanted to talk about the comparisons between um, Prometheus and Amiran. Um, okay, that's what you have to say. Yeah, so we're here for. I actually, so I guess, the, well, I guess the, what this needs to do is it needs to begin with the relationship of the story of Prometheus and the story of Amiran with politics in general and Georgian politics. So many people are already familiar with the story of prometheus and part of the reason many are familiar is because of the fact that he's an extremely flexible um political symbol um he's been used by everyone um and kaziria makes this point often um so for example prometheus of course because he rebelled against zeus for the benefit of humanity, he's a symbol of rebellion and enlightenment, um, and this was true during the you know during the Enlightenment era. Um, many Enlightenment, um, like for example, Republican anti-monarchist um, organizations, either took inspiration from Prometheus or used him as a symbol, um, and. The, you know, the idea is Prometheus brings both liberation and knowledge to, um, to humanity. And this is what the Enlightenment era was all about. I'm talking about the European philosophical movement. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I'm trying to find... Specifically with Georgia, um, I mentioned before, Prokis, um, Proto-Christova mentioned that he's primarily primordially connected to the black sea region we already know about the um connections between um amiran and the prometheus as a story that was passed on um it's been used as a symbol of georgian resistance against russian imperialism very be it white or red for that matter um so the Prometheus green or yeah or green um so the Prometheus Project was started by Eurasian emigres in Paris to oppose the takeover of the region by the USSR. Um, this included also, you like, not just um, Georgians, but Ukrainians and 
basically any other Eastern European country that was at one point um, uh, so a satellite state of the Soviet Union or part of the Soviet Union. Um, there's it was also Prometheus was also used as a symbol by the Bolsheviks um, and by supporters of Marx. Um, there's a depiction of Marx in a political cartoon where he's like chained to a rock and I don't know, the monarchy is eating his liver or something. Yeah, um, like that. yeah it's actually Prussia. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. Yeah, the Eagle of Prussia. Um, because Prussians did not like Marx. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, it was it was very popular around the time of the October Revolution um, as a symbol by the Bolsheviks to be used as um, proletarian resistance to capitalism. So you can see here, like, both pro-Soviet and anti-Soviet, everybody uses um, Prometheus. I just like that particular example. Mm -hmm. um, there's a statue of Amiran in Tbilisi. It's very important to Georgian identity. Um, I actually have a passage here that I wanted to read directly from Kazuria's article, um, Amirani, a Georgian folk hero. Um, she writes, from the end of the 19th century, interest in the legend grew not only among scholars, but among writers and poets. There was a particular historical political reason for this, a strengthening of the feeling of national consciousness in Georgia. At this time, Russian was declared the official language. Georgian was banned in all institutes of learning. In the gymnasia and the seminary in Tbilisi, the, readings, the reading or speaking of Georgian was forbidden. Only with great difficulty was permission obtained from the Russian government for the publication of a single Georgian newspaper, Iveria. The Georgian intelligentsia rallied to this newspaper attempting to foster interest in the national culture, language, and history, and to counteract the Russification of the country. It is easy to imagine what inspirations to the legend of a Georgian Prometheus provided. Excuse me, the story of a hero enchained on the cliffs of the Caucasus, who, as several variants had it, would sometimes break his chains and take revenge upon his enemies. Amiran became the subject of many stories, poems, and plays. Particularly popular was the verse by the outstanding Georgian opponent, Akaji Tseretelli, um, contains the following lines. Amiran, Amirani, chained to the Caucasian peaks, is Georgia herself, and the ravens tearing at his breast, they are her, en her enemies. So... Once again, we see it repeat here with um, Medea being a symbol of, you know, could could possibly standing in as a symbol of resistance. I didn't find anything about that, but I certainly found quite a lot about Amiran being a stand-in for resistance in in Georgian politics. Yeah, no, and the way I can see Amiran being like a huge symbol is also because he is literally their warrior hero. Like he is the guy who yes. stands up to any challenge. He completes everything. And then he's enchained because he, you know, he's, he, no one, he doesn't want to be, he challenges the wrong person, God. Yeah. And yeah. then like, he's chained up for that because he thought he was basically trying to go over his head at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of, he sort of exemplifies a kind of um, attitude that's pretty attractive when, again, when you're Georgia and you're resisting Russification and Sovietization and, you know, imperialism of any kind, um, which was that uh, it's better to reign in hell than rule in heaven. Yeah, and actually going along the lines of Amaran being chained, um, like the one thing I actually noticed is that 
essentially like the difference between like so what happened to prometheus after he was broken free by hercules let's just get that one out of the way if you recall no i don't recall to you <laughs> nope um so but anyways uh, I'm sure, my point. I, didn't, I didn't bother to read past that part yeah okay um so basically what happens with amiran though is literally they jesus sends our god christ either one depending on the story they send we, we so kursha amiran's dog licks the chains to weaken them to kind of to help amiran escape but and then amiran tries to you know remove the pole that he's staked down to and then god at the end of the year right before amiran can finally escape sends a bird and amiran knocks it back down driving the stake further in but one thing that so I'm pretty sure nothing bad happened once Hercules freed Prometheus. But one thing that they, the Georgians and just the folklorists just kind of write about is the fact that if Amaran escapes, hell's going to break loose on Earth, essentially. Like, he's going to kill everybody. As, especially here, it says, I have here, he's going to kill the um, the blacksmith and the bright eyes. So... And the bright-eyed ones. So, like, he's basically he's going to kill... He's going to wipe the earth clean of blacksmiths and bright-eyed ones. Because the blacksmiths are the ones who made who forges chains every year. Um, also, depending on the story. And so he, he either stakes himself back in or blacksmiths go up and reforges chains. Mm -hmm. And the bright-eyed ones he also wants to kill. Okay, so I just quickly Googled it. I'm pretty sure that the original source for this is Virgil. Um, but after Prometheus is freed, um, Prometheus informs Zeus of a prophecy, which is that the goddess Thetis, who uh, Zeus was in love with, because, you know, that's just a Monday for Zeus. Um, Zeus in love? What, Zeus? I can't believe that. <laughs> loving someone besides Hera? What? Uh, so, um, so he informs Zeus that Thetis will give birth to a son who will be greater than him. Greater Which than is Achilles. His, greater than his father. Um, and then that's the start of the Iliad, which is the story of the Trojan War. Um, I think as told by the Romans. Yeah, so... No, no. I, Homer wrote the Iliad. Homer wrote the Iliad. The Aeneid was written by Aeneas. Yes. By Virgil. By, yeah, by Virgil, right. <laughs> yeah, so... Essentially, that's actually one of the things is like, it's actually one of the, one of the things I actually want to talk about was with, um, was between Thetis and Dolly. Mm -hmm. So trigger warning starts now, guys, by the way. Okay. Um, um, so basically you have Thetis who is basically, she, uh, she's joins up with, Pe uh, Peleus, 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 Peleus. Yes. So Achilles' father. Mm -hmm. And the reason being because they want Zeus want Zeus wanted someone meek to kind of have, you know, to be married to Thetis because he didn't want someone to topple. He didn't want his own son to topple him, you know, to do what he did to his own father. <clears throat> mm -hmm. But yeah, that comes but in the lot meantime, Greek mythology, by the way. Yeah. Um, so, but one thing that Thetis does is that she essentially has Achilles swim in the river Styx and gives him like invulnerability mm -hmm. everywhere except for his heel. Yeah, specifically but, she holds him by his um ankle, by his by the by his Achilles. By his Achilles, yeah. By his Achilles tendon. And then dips yeah. him in 
And that's his only vulnerable spot. Well, actually, and, one of the things I was reading by uh, Professor Tweet, if I'm saying that right, forgive me if I'm not, um, is that uh, his father, Peleus, came in like and stopped her from completing the whole yes, thing. Something so Because uh, otherwise, he would have been more Achilles would have been invulnerable, allowing him to achieve full godhood. But if the same thing happens with Amiran, because and because um, depending on the source, um, the one the one we we just read, um, essentially because she was in, because she got her her golden plates cut her whatever a plate is I think it's just like a massive hair tied together, mm-hmm. um, because that was cut she basically had to leave the earth and because she was dying, and so because the pregnancy was cut short from within her womb and he was Amaran was forced to grow within the wombs of other creatures of a cow of a yeah. cow and so basically Amaran couldn't achieve his full like p- potential because of the situation or other or like mm-hmm. in another version where Dolly gets raped by a hunter and D- Amaran's stepfather finds Dolly crying and she's like you know I'm dying I don't want to like be on this earth anymore. And she gives him Amaran and tells him the exact same things he told to Dar- she told to Darjeeling in the sto- version that we read. Darjeeling being Amaran's father and this the nicer version. Um but yeah, so basically they kind of weren't able, both Achilles and Amaran were unable to achieve their full godhood, which I thought was like a really interesting point and there's like ver- a lot of parallels where like Achilles gets slayed at the end, and Amaran gets captured by the at the end of the story mm-hmm. of their respective stories. Yeah, um, and that's interesting because that has to do with um, what I think is probably. Um, I mean, I I project this theme onto literally all fiction because I noticed it, um, but I think the major theme of all of these is transgression. You know, even is transgression between the human and the divine. Um, Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you can, even with Achilles, he's not exactly human, but he's just short of being a God. Um, And so it was the same with Amiran. He could have almost been a God if it were not for the fact that he was, his uh, development in Dolly's womb was cut short. Um, Exactly. And this, plays into the general theme uh, throughout the lives of both Prometheus and Amiran. You know, Prometheus doesn't... Prometheus has an... I guess he does have a transgressive beginning because he was a traitor to the Titans. Um, And then he was also a traitor to Zeus, but ultimately his loyalties lay with humanity. Um, Mm -hmm. So, in the first place, Amiran is born either of rape but in other stories he's born of adultery um between um dolly and his father um and he commits several transgressions against god to say the least yes he commits exactly three against god yeah three against god you know he breaks his oath to christ exactly three times and then literally fights god indirectly but literally fights god actually in some version of the stories um St. George, who is actually the angel yes. that baptized, you know, uh, Amaran, Hintinch, George, Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have a, this whole naming thing in episode one. Um, but essentially, St. George baptizes him. And in some version of the stories, he says, 
you will be una- you'll be unbeatable by anyone as long as you as long as you don't break three O's to Christ. Mm-hmm. Which also so, is a parallel to Samson there. Yeah, so basically, as long as he keeps as long as he, as long as he doesn't break three O's to Christ, he's going to be unbeatable. But you know, Amiran breaks his first oath when he promises the Dev sister, sister the Dev lady. Oh yeah, I'll free you. Then just slays her. Um, then like the second one, also another what? Um, no, it's at this this time. It's, I think it's yes, also another woman. Um, she's like, hey, no, no. For the second one's with the with the the massive dude who's like who has to be pulled by twelve oxen. He's getting he's he's being buried alive because he no one will be able to move him once he dies. He's like, take mm. care of my son. Amaran's like, okay, cool, I'll I'll do so. Goes and sees that the son is like super strong at his at his such a young age. He's like, I don't want a rival. Kills the son, breaking his second oath. And then when he goes to find Ketu, um, he basically like meets another dev woman. She's like, oh, I'll make a bridge out of my hair, and you know, just be friendly to me, and you know, I'll help you out. And she's like, okay. So they start crossing, and then halfway through crossing. He cuts the bridge in half and has the lady drown. So basically, Amiran just literally killed two women and a child mm-hmm. and broke those oaths to God. Like those, they're like, I swear to Christ that you won't harm me or harm this or harm the boy. Sure, sure. Breaks him immediately. Like no thought given. Like just he does it, no remorse, because he likes fighting. And it's just like, I don't want to deal with devs. And because if you notice at the end, he he just leaves three devs, three oak trees, and three bushes in the world before he's before he's chained up by God as well. Mm. Um, um, but so anyway, this is this theme of transgressing against the divine is here. Mm-hmm. Not only it's in Prometheus and it's in the Book of Genesis, which um, if you're familiar with the story of Genesis, you probably know what we're talking about. So. Um, this was one of my actually one of my more interesting things. I noticed this a while ago. Um, so I was, I think I was reading some philosophy book, and they was using, um, using the book of Genesis as a metaphor. But anyway, um, just like Prometheus, the serpent in the book of Genesis, um, we already mentioned this. Um, tempts Eve, the first woman, into transgressing against God not only breaking one of God's rules, but because she eats from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, she is somewhat elevated to the level of the divine. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not only a transgression of morality, or rather the transgression of morality is defined by a transgression of separating the divine and the human. Um, Mm -hmm. And... um, this is seen as a bad thing. Um, Adam and Eve are um, exiled from the Garden of Eden. And if you are a Christian, you say this is only solved eventually when Christ sacrifices himself on the cross. I, I don't know what the solution is to the fall in um, Judaism and Islam, but in other Abrahamic religions, but that's what I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, if there is any solution, I don't know. Um, and, and so again, in this case, elevating yourself to the divine is disobedience. Therefore it's bad, but this really goes to show only just how just petty and amoral, even more petty than the old Testament God, 
because Old Testament God is very fire and brimstone compared to New Testament God. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just goes again, I keep putting this over and over again. In Greek mythology, where your humanity is basically the playthings of the gods. So when Prometheus elevates humanity to um, somewhat to the level of divine by taking a divine power, fire, from the gods and bringing it down to humanity, um, this is seen as a good thing because Prometheus is an advocate for humanity, and you want you know Greeks want good things to happen to humanity. But on the part of Zeus, he has to take his revenge. You know, it's not. It's it's punishment, but it's punishment for doing something good. So that's just I don't know. To me, that's just revenge by definition. Um, yeah, Zeus is super vengeful. Yeah, he's very but vengeful. Actually, but actually, um, he's reading a quote from David Lang, who wrote the Georgians, which is one of my sources. Mm-hmm. Um, he he actually wrote about Amaran. It's like a little quick quip. And he goes, instead of battling against Zeus, Amaran becomes the adversary of Jesus Christ and challenges Christ to a rock-throwing competition, loses, and becomes chained like Prometheus. Amaran also murders Christians and is a loudmouth braggart. Yes. So Amaran... So basically, Amaran's he's the complete opposite of Prometheus. Because like he does, Amaran does absolutely mm-hmm. nothing to help humanity. He makes blacksmithing and metallurgy, but that's just in some of the sources. Not mm-hmm. all of them. So like he doesn't do anything to really help people. He's just kind of a wild spirit who does what he wants. He, kind of pers- he personifies freedom, basically. But the freedom mm-hmm. to do violence against others. Right. And, you know, like I said before, Prometheus represents freedom not only from ignorance, as in, um, you know, he brings metalworking to humanity, but freedom um, freedom from oppression. Mm-hmm. From, so he has, you know, he has a freedom from ignorance and oppression. Um, and... Um, I mean, if you want more examples of this theme of um, transgressing against the divine, whether or not that's a good or a bad thing, in the context of, um, I think what my, I don't know if this is like the scholarly interpretation, but Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein, to me, um, being a romantic was sort of critiquing, um, critiquing enlightenment rationality by telling the story of the modern Prometheus, Frankenstein, of how transgressing into the vine, as in literally taking fire from the gods in the form of lightning, and then, and then, I mean, the word we have for bestowing life or making life is playing God. Um, mm-hmm. So Victor Frankenstein, the doctor who creates his monster, um, uh, you know, transgresses against the divine, against nature, even in that sense, if you maybe you want to be more accurate to the romantic um, philosophy. Um, doesn't exactly misuse science because it's kind of inherent science to expand human knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, knowledge which was at one point God's and is now humanities. Um, she's critiquing of how that can possibly go wrong i mean knowing her political leanings i don't think she was um all that opposed to the idea of um political um liberation that uh, prometheus represented i mean she was a she was a republican 
um, which means that she believed in a democratic government, representative government, um, as opposed to a monarchy throughout her entire life, especially when it was not popular. Um, and her father was an anarchist, straight up. Uh, she uh, she's not opposed to like Prometheus as as what he represents as political freedom, and I'm not sure that what her feelings on science were, um, but you can definitely see this theme here in in Frankenstein where science goes too far, and the moment it goes too far is when it takes what was normally the realm of the divine, which is creating life, and brings it down to human humanity's level. <clears throat> humanity's level. Mm -hmm. um, and uh and, and if you've spoilers for the novel frankenstein but it doesn't go well um frankenstein the monster sorry frankenstein's monster is um rejected by his creator and he goes through the edgiest existential crisis in history we're talking shadow the hedgehog levels of edge <laughs> oh great <laughs> uh, uh, shadow the hedgehog levels of brooding on the part of frankenstein's monster um, which, but I mean, I make fun of it, but I think it's a very beautiful novel. Uh, I've never read it and I do plan to, mm. but it's just, I have an ever growing list of novels that I have to read mm -hmm. and I'm not getting through stuff quickly enough because I'm right. on a binge on a, with gaming. And also I have a podcast to run, so I have to read yeah. for that too. <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, this reminds me of, um, there was an author, um, Arthur Macon, Arthur Macon. Um, no clue. I never read him, but I've heard of him. And in, uh, the again, bringing you back to the podcast Weird Studies, which I'm a huge fan. Um, he has a story called "The White People," which is about I think it's a retelling of Celtic folklore. Um, and there's a character who gives his philosophy of what sin is, and he says sin is when you encounter the flower singing um which is basically a way of saying the ordinary and familiar suddenly becoming extremely surreal and unfamiliar and bizarre um you know mm -hmm. the unknown encroaching into the known worlds um and to him sin is uh sin is you know the sort of ecstasy which in mystical tradition is union with the divine uh so that's you know it's it's um again it goes back to um you know the story of prometheus and the garden of eden which is sort of the morality of uh the morality of you know singing against god or transgressing against zeus is encouched it's couched in the metaphysics of it it's about categorical violation Mm -hmm. I'm specifically between you know, the human and the divine. Um, so I think that was pretty much my whole point. Um, yeah, yeah that's pretty I think, much my whole point there. Yeah, and I think we're, we're actually at a good stopping point. Mm -hmm. So Brendan, thank you for coming and oh, discussing okay, cool. Amran with me. Awesome. All right. Yeah. I, like for me, Amran was like, just reading it was fantastic. Like, honestly, I would love to see a movie like this because I would love to see a movie where too. the character... Where the where the where the main character just ends badly and like oh yeah 
you know, screw you for being such a jerk to people. Like, literally, yeah, they just wanted you to be nice to people, and no you just decided to kill anymore. them. Huh? There's no good tragedies anymore. Everything has to be a happy ending. Right? Like, come on, Marvel. We don't need a happy ending. Yeah. Who could we screw over in Marvel? Who doesn't get The, the only time people are screwed over in Marvel is in Endgame. Or Infinity War. So. Yeah, and then it's just all undone. Yep. Um, so anyways, so next week we're actually back to the narrative. We're going to be tackling on the Hellenistic Age for however long that lasts. <laughs> yeah, doesn't it? It starts with Alexander the Great. Uh, Alexander the Great comes in, yeah. But he is not involved at all. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, when does Literally, he come in? He doesn't. <laughs> okay, whatever. It literally is just he passes by like like the Persian Empire takes it over and then everyone just starts fall everything just starts falling apart. Enter uh, the dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and but hey, hey, you know what's gonna be great though? We what? do get our first Georgian king soon. Oh, awesome! Like actual historical one that's not eighties. Nice. No, yeah, so. Real. Yes, of course. <laughs> Completely real. Completely real. He's as real as yeah. Amaran was. <laughs> mm-hmm. I will anyway. I think yeah. Anyways, it was good. a pleasure having you on. Thank you guys for listening, and stay tuned for whatever we have left to, left to say at the end of this episode. All right. Ciao. Ciao. Well, everyone, I thought that was just a fantastic story to read to y'all, and I think we did pretty good with that discussion. I can't wait to go back to the narrative in two weeks' time. And we start with the Hellenistic Age period, and we start leading up to the first king of Georgia, or technically the first king of Iberia, Parnabaz. As I've mentioned before, if we're not on any streaming service, please let me know, and I'll get right on it. If you do have anything you want to say, feel free to look us up on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram as The History of Sacredvelo, Georgia, on Twitter at history underscore Georgia, on our website at historyofsacredvelo.com, or on our email at thehistoryofsacredvelogeorgia at gmail.com. Sacredvelo is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O. Also, iTunes reviews, those are always so helpful because it helps get our show out and, you know, even just talking about the history of Sacredvelo, Georgia would do so much to help us grow. I'd love to see more listeners. I'd love to have a bigger audience because I want to get the stories of Georgia told. And honestly, I've been enjoying this so much and I hope you guys have been too. Madloba danakfamdis. And thank you for listening to the history of Sakadvelo, Georgia. See you next time.